and show us things and help us to adjust uh, things, Lord, that we can uh, align ourselves up, Lord, in, in places where you would want us to work in and how you would want us to operate in and how you would want us to see things and decisions that we need to make, Lord, that maybe they're uh, somewhat uh, simple decisions, but if we make the wrong decision, it will chew up our time or, or cause us to go in a direction that um, would not be uh, fruitful for our life, Lord. And so as we gather here tonight, Lord, we just pray that you'll continue to help us, align us, Lord, that we can be fruitful, that our fruit will remain, um, Lord, that we'll just continue to abound in the work of the Lord. So we yield ourselves to you in this area. Lord, help us to have wisdom in our homes and our family. Lord, with our, with our spouses, with our children, with our, with our neighbors, with our co-workers. Lord, just help us to have wisdom, to be able to um, redeem the time, Lord, because the days are evil. To be able to say things, Lord, minister things and release things and pray things, Lord, that are going to help others, Lord, that are around us that are dear to us, Lord, that will have an impact upon them, Father. So help us, Lord, as, as we're walking with you, Lord, to be able to release what you've given to us and be able to minister what you've given to us, Lord, to, the, to those around us. So enlarge our hearts, Lord, enlarge our borders, Lord. Open our, our mouths and fill our mouths with things from you, Lord. Use us, Lord, as your mouthpiece. Use us, Lord, as your instrument, Lord, to reach out to other people, Lord, to minister to other ones within our family, within our community, Lord. Father, we just continue to yield ourselves to you in this way. Lord, we thank you for it. We pray that you'll bless this service. We pray for your grace, your anointing. Lord, the spirit of a teacher would come and flow, and his anointing would be here through this service. Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nick. Whoo-wee. Man, you guys ready? Ready? It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> oh, man. That's a good question. <laughs> oh, I am an overstudier type of person. I like to get all the facts and all, but on certain subjects, it just seems to be never ending. So where do you stop and before you start penciling things down and starting, you know, so so I always just stick to the word. So I can gather all the information and data from other sources that I can compile, but man, when it comes down to it, I will definitely be quoting a lot of scripture tonight. Uh, so uh, I'm in a series called In the Beginning, and uh, I think chapter one was called Lucifer and the Dark Fallen Void Earth or something like that. And chapter two, uh, kind of going to relabel just the firmament because that's about all I had time to because I had the firmament, the stars, and sun, the moon. But today is going to be just called Angels and the Stars of Heaven, chapter three. So Angels and the Stars of Heaven. So I got to get uh, my initial base here again. So... Because a lot of things I like to talk about are a little usually controversial or things people don't talk about a lot. So, so I like to start off this way. Who trusts the governments of the world to tell you the truth? Nope, you go, you go and ask a million people, you're probably going to get uh, very few people 
you know, out of a million people that are going to agree and say, oh, yeah, I trust the government to tell me the truth. All right, people are very weary of the government. For each nation, the governments that rule them get to dictate what truth and fact are. They control the media, the propaganda, the tech companies, the corporations, but most importantly, the educational system that gets to form the minds of young people. This is nothing new. This has happened since the age of man. The new rulers and upper class expel the old doctrines, facts, and history of conquered lands and replace them with their own facts, the facts they want their citizens to believe. If they're the ones that went and sabotaged another country and uh, <laughs> invaded them first, well, they could rewrite that history and just say, oh, no, they attacked us and we were just defending ourselves, right? It's like the victors get to determine what history is. What is truly mind-boggling to me is that nearly everyone says that they have a huge distrust of the government, while at the same time adamantly defend academia and with fearsome vigor, heralding it as great truth and the highest advanced learning. While knowing and understanding fully well that the government in which they have such distrust is the very organization which is dictating what is taught in science and math and history and the like. Can someone please try to wrap their head around that and explain it to me? This should not be. By declaring distrust for the government, one must then declare to have some same distrust of any group or organization owned by the distrusted government, especially any organization that tries to teach, inform, and indoctrinate information and ideas to its pupils and citizens, a.k.a. the media and the educational system. When you prayed to God to expose the lies and reveal his truth to the world, what did you expect? Did you think there was no fallacy to be found in your beliefs or that of your society? No. No lies within your understanding? Surely we are not that arrogant to assume that we possess all truth. We talk about how corrupt our societies, from our governments to our cultures, to our entertainment, to our education, yet if we have been taught what to believe from these corrupt institutions from childhood, why are we so reluctant to exile such non-biblical doctrines if we truly believe that they are as corrupt as we say they are? Did we not come to know everything, nearly everything we believe and understand from our schools? It doesn't make sense. Truth is, it's not easy to come to terms with the fact that you believed a lie and must now take on a new perspective. It requires us to humble ourselves and admit that we were wrong in accepting certain lies as truth, largely because we just didn't know any better and put our confidence in those teaching us. Not only does it deal with pride, but as I can tell you from personal experience, the level of shame uh, I felt afterwards in coming to the realization that I had been tricked and fooled for so long was embarrassing. At times, I wanted to crawl back into the hole of ignorance and go back to believing the lie if it meant getting rid of this heavy shame. But I couldn't do that. Anyone here ever been tricked, scammed, or deceived? It's not a good feeling, right? It makes you just feel so little, so small that how could I fall for that, right? That's what it does. It just being lied to and tricked just puts shame on you. As an adult, the feeling of shame seems exponentially worse than when you were a kid because you feel as though you should have known better than to trust and believe that person at face value. It's usually a case of too good to be true, but you just couldn't miss out on such an opportunity. 
only to find out it was a complete sham, a fraud. The weight of that guilt and embarrassment is heavy. So I'm going to tell a story uh, when I was in Bible college, and I have not told anyone until recently I told my wife this story, but the shame of it was, I'd say, heavy for all these years. That was 15, 15 plus years ago. And uh, so I was working at Einstein Brothers Bagels, and there were two guys in there, and they were selling a laptop. I was like, I could really use a laptop right now. And so I went over and looked at the, you know, what it said, the box. And they're trying to upsell this, uh, this laptop. So I arranged a time to meet them. There's like a super sale for this awesome laptop. And uh, so I met up with them a couple days later, purchased a laptop, got back home, opened it up. You know what I found? A box of rocks. I can't tell you how stupid I felt. Nope. <laughs> my ignorance and my trust in people got the best of me. I just thought, ah, who's going to screw someone over like that? Just someone I meet at work. And <laughs> I just remember opening it. My heart just sank because I'm in a room full of my you know, my Bible buddies, and they're probably all wondering what, and I just kind of shuffled off to the side and put off to the side because I didn't tell anybody. You know, how embarrassing. I just spent hundreds of dollars to buy a box of rocks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, that hurt. <laughs> oh, I couldn't believe I'd been duped and so naive and foolish to not even just inspect and open, make them show me the goods, you know? But you just don't think the world as evil as it is when you're younger, you know? So that was my uh, interesting story. Only the truth, if accepted and received, can set you free and lift off the weight that lies place on your shoulders. Don't let the thought of shame or pride hold you back from opening your eyes to what else God wants to reveal. In this hour, he needs us to understand the times and seasons that we are in, especially in these last days. You cannot afford to rely on what you have been taught in secular and even Christian school systems as much of what is taught is in alignment with that of the world. What God has told us to be true in his word is vehemently rejected and scoffed by the educational and academia organizations worldwide. On whose side will you stand? on those that scoff at God and what he has revealed about creation, the heavenlies, and the future? I'd be much more careful and hesitant in crossing that line than what many of my fellow believers so rashly do. Again, I do not demand that my listeners simply swallow every premise, doctrine, or theory that may fly from my lips, rather that the listener and reader would heed the word of life found in the Bible and be willing to take another look on a matter in view of the scriptures. To simply, take, to simply take certain beliefs you have stored in the vault of your heart and simply reinspect that belief under the microscope of God's word to see if it has the engraving made in heaven upon it. To do this, you'll need to put that belief on trial and cross-examine it, ask it questions, and seek its authenticity. If it is the real truth, it will be more than happy to oblige such a critique. 
and interrogation of its authenticity. Only those doctrines of false and untrue nature do not wish to be taken out from the vault of your beliefs and reexamined. Because if they are thoroughly questioned and interrogated in the light of God's word, their evil falsehood and intent will be exposed and they will be expelled from the depths of man's heart and no longer be free to spew its vial out of the mouth of its host. It's going to be it's a, little, a little heavy tonight, so. <laughs> but I had to get this out because I just had to get it out. <laughs> Mike says it's always heavy. <laughs> so which doctrines and beliefs are you unwilling and hesitant to reexamine? Even the idea of reexamining the doctrine of salvation should not trouble the Christian believer. What? Why is that? Because after examining the scripture to an even greater extent, will simply add more evidence to the case of Christ and further strengthen one's stance on the message and doctrine of salvation through Christ. Nothing should be off the table for reexamination. God's word will gladly prove time and time again that he alone is the author of all truth, no matter how many times he is put on trial and asked to give testimony of the truth. Anybody glad for the word of God that we just get to constantly go back to it and back to it and back to it and back to it, and it is the standard in our lives? I get to constantly re-examine things that I once thought and thought, why did I believe that? It's not even in the word, <laughs> right? Anybody had that happen to them before? Many, many, many a times, right? There's so many just cliche Christian beliefs that are just so, you just, tradition that you just think, oh, surely it's in the Word of God, and then you go look for it, and it's not even there, and you think, well, where did this come from? You know, this once saved, always saved, that everyone that commits suicide, anyone that commits suicide automatically goes to hell, and you're just like, oh, you know, it's just things you hear growing up, and you're just thinking, those got to be true. And then you look for it, and, and they're not there. You know? It's just, it's just mind-boggling. When you get into the Word, it just speaks for itself. Amen? That's what I love about the Word. So I ask you again, what topic is off-limits to you to discuss and examine? The Bible's view of the firmament instead of outer space. The Bible's view and proclamation of a four-cornered, four-pillars, footstool-shaped earth. The Bible's view on earth unmovable and stationary while the sun, moon, and stars make their circuit on the inside of the firmament. If you willingly admit that you have never really spent the time to look into such matters, then why are you so hesitant to hear what the God of the Bible has to say about it in Scripture? Whew. I can tell you why. Because you, haven't, you have a different worldly view on the inside which does not want to be replaced or have light shined upon it. It starts to scream and screech and turn your stomach into a knot at the thought of being exposed while your mind tries to understand with all rationality why even the discussion of such a topic makes your flesh so eerily uncomfortable as if full of fear and worry that a piece of you might go missing. I've had that feeling many times. Oh, that, that's got to stay. That's got to be a God, right? It's a strange feeling for what appears to be such a strange and unimportant topic. 
compared to the gospel message. I mean, it's not like my belief one way or the other has a huge impact on how I live my life, right? It's not like it affects my going up or going down. Does anyone realize the subtle and craftiness of what just happened with that question? To what extent that kind of logic and questioning could bring us? Oddly enough, this is without a doubt the most common and expected statement I receive when initiating conversations on these topics. Does it even matter? It's not like salvation depends upon it. <laughs> My mom's like, yeah, that was me. I said that. <laughs> uh, I have found it very interesting to see such repetition of this response. What stands out first and foremost to me is that me talking about the creation story, the firmament, the sun, the moon, the stars, and of the earth, which has absolutely nothing to do with salvation message, of course, is instantly pushed to the side of unimportant and irrelevance because it doesn't pertain to the gospel message. That is not that it's not worth even discussing because it doesn't point to Christ. Where is the logic of reasoning and response in regards to other topics? You can bring up politics, you can bring up weather, sports, Bible stories of this topic and that topic, but as soon as you step into the science box of the Bible, it is deemed unimportant and not worth discussing any further. Why is that? Well, there's a simple and profound answer to this. Now, this is a little sarcasm here. Because although we as Christians believe the Word of God to be true, modern advancements in the area of science have proven God's Word to be false. And since I confess God's Word to be the ultimate source of all truth, I must therefore admit that the patriarchs of old, along with the interpreters of the holy inspired Word of God, simply and accidentally did not understand God in what He was trying to convey to them. Because at the end of the day, we must make the Bible conform to the wisdom of man because science has proven to be the ultimate authority in regards to Mother Nature and its earth and also the celestial bodies of the heavens. Whew. Come on. Tell me that's not true. Side note. But in every other area, non-related to science, the patriarchs and interpreters knew exactly what God wanted to convey and did so perfectly. After all, the scriptures are the God-breathed and inspired of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I mean, let that sink in. Wow. That's how we view when God talks about science, that, oh, it's uninspired, but everything else in the scripture, oh, that's, that's inspired. Why? Because it doesn't mesh with what we've been taught in school. Not one bit. Oh, yeah, sure, you can find certain things, but especially relating to the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and the firmament and the heavenlies, not even close. It's in direct opposition. No wonder the world scoffs at us. Nearly no one in Christendom has the gall, the audacity to challenge the almighty, all-knowing league of science. Go ahead and try it. Go ahead and try to convince your fellow man that evolution is pseudoscience and has never been proven. Go ahead and try to convince them in the halls of academia that there are only two genders now. That the global warming threat to our planet is a sham. That vaccines are nothing less than biological terrorism sold to the masses under the guise of health and safety. Go ahead and try to convince others that we are made in the image of God and our human beings, not evolved mammals. Go ahead. They'll ridicule and shame you and scoff at you. 
Instead of rebutting their erroneous claims of evolution, sun-worshipping, Masonic cult ideology, we have cowered in the corner with a white flag raised, desperately pleading for their permission to dare to believe just certain portions of Scripture that are not in contradiction to their great and advanced knowledge of truth. I don't know about you, I'm tired of that. All Scripture points to God. All. All of it. Every bit of it, bit of it tells me just a little more insight into who God is, what He is like, and how He thinks. To say that any part of Scripture is unimportant and irrelevant or not worth discussing is a part of God you deem not worth knowing. Let me say that again. To say that any part of Scripture is unimportant and irrelevant or not worth discussing is a part of God you deem not worth knowing. I don't know about you, but I want to know the full counsel of who He is and what He is. If that's your position, go ahead and rip that page out. But I ask you, where does that stop? Who gets to determine how much should be done away with? It's a slippery slope that leads straight to hell. That is exactly why I have, no, I have no burden in my conscience when teaching from the full counsel of God's word. Is it not all profitable for instruction, correction, and rebuke? The primary reason I am teaching on such topics is because God's word is true. And every lie ever blabbed from that slithering snake was for the purpose of turning men away from God and to himself. Every single lie. Every lie, no matter how small or how big, turns men's hearts from God. Is this not the case more than any other today, that the primary ideology that exists in the world today that turns men's hearts away from God with the notion that he doesn't even exist is no other than the doctrine of devils known as evolution? Without the lie of modern astronomy, outer space would not exist. Without the lie of outer space, our solar systems would not exist. No solar system, no galaxies, no galaxies, no universe, no universe, no Big Bang. No Big Bang, no evolution. Science books have long replaced the once cherished Bibles in our schools. Unlike most other subjects taught in our schools, at least back in the days, no other subjects were in complete violation and contradiction of the Word of God as the book of science. The two have become completely and utterly incompatible with one another. To believe what's written in the pages of one, you must then entirely throw out the other. Do you honestly admit that the devil has almost near total control of politics, entertainment, business, finance, technology, but deny its infiltration of science? Is there known to man a more hateful group of people than these non-God-believing atheists who jump at every opportunity to defame and slander and ridicule Christians at every possible opportunity along with the God they serve? Yet these same God-defying men are the very ones accredited with writing your science books, the very people in charge of ed educating the minds of your children in schools. 
colleges and universities. They are the very same ones who form governmental agencies such as NASA that declare to you the knowledge of the heavens and earth with the authority of the government behind them. A reverend gentleman told Thomas Winship in 1998, the Bible is only inspired when it speaks on matters of the soul. When it speaks on physical matters such as astronomical facts, it is merely the opinion of the writers. They believe, therefore, or end quote, they believe science, therefore, they disbelieve the Bible. To, to believe both, ugh, get my words tied up here, to believe both to be correct at the same time, or to say when the Bible speaks of physical facts is only the opinion of the writers and not inspired, is to refute any statement made as being truly inspired. If the Bible be not true in the matters of science, it cannot possibly be true on any other matter. It is either true in part and true altogether, or it is false in part and false altogether. Between modern astronomy and the Bible, there is not so much as an inch of standing ground. If the Bible be not true in some things, it cannot be true in any, and therefore must be rejected in total. Courtney, can you bring my backpack up? I think I have a book in there that I want to read from. Everyone still with me so far? All right. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to read uh, the pages of this book. It's basically quotes from again, men around the 1800 time frame. Um, this is, was in the Reynolds newspaper, August 14th, 1892. Uh, the heading democratic world. We are trembling on the eve of a discovery which many revolutionize the whole thought of the world. The almost universal opinion of scientific men is that the planet Mars is inhabited by beings like or superior to ourselves. Already they have discovered eat canals cut into its surface in ge geometrical form, which can only be the work of reasoning creatures. They have seen its snow fields, and it only requires a telescope a little stronger than those already in existence to reveal the mystery as to whether sentient beings exist on the planet. If it be found that this is the case, the whole Christian religion will crumble to pieces. The story of the creation has already become an old wives' tale. Hell is never mentioned in any well-informed society of clergymen. The devil has become a myth. If Mars is inhabited, the irresistible deduction will be that all the other planets are inhabited. This will put an end to the fable prompted by the vanity of humanity that the Son of God came to the earth and suffered for creatures who are the lineal descendants of monkeys. It is not to be supposed that the Hebrew carpenter Jesus went about as a kind of theosophical missionary to all the planets in the solar system, reincarnate and suffering for the sins of various pygmies and giants, as the case may be, who may dwell there. The astronomers would do well to make haste to reveal to us the magnificent, magnificent secret which the world impatiently awaits. Wow. 
They just went right for it. <laughs> the blasphemies that come <laughs> from this ideology of astronomers is just unbelievable. Let's see another one I have here. Here's another uh, from the free thinker of 1892. There is something in Christianity calculated to make it hostile to science. Its sacred books are defaced by a puerile cosmogony and a vast number of physical absurdities, while its whole atmosphere in the New as well as in the Old Testament is in the highest degree unscientific. The Bible gives a false account of the origin of the world, a foolish account of the origin of man, a ridiculous account of the origin of languages. It tells us of a universal flood which never happened, and all these facilities are bound up with essential doctrines such as the fall of man and the atonement of Christ. You get kind of a general theme of what these men of science are saying that push this doctrine, this ideology. Another quote from the Reynolds newspaper. The most noteworthy feature of the British Association this year is that the assembled savants representing religion, science, philosophy, politics have surrendered hands down to views which, if accepted by anyone 10 years ago, would be sneered at as a mark of disgrace. The church has had to give in because geology and biology have been too strong for the book of Genesis, which is no longer to be accepted as a real account of the creation, but merely a symbolical one. The incontestable experiments and experiences of the practical scientists have proved that Darwin was right, that evolution is as certain a law as, a, as gravitation. What a number of the learned books of a few years ago opposing evolution must now be ignominiously withdrawn from circulation. And how small must the controversial parson and the lay evangelist who would prove to you in two jiffies that science was all bosh, feel at the thunders of a competent scholars. There's more. <laughs> I don't even like reading this crap, but to give you an idea and a sense of how much, how important this is and how much against science has become against the word of God, I mean, you just got to read it from their mouths because we don't hardly see, we, you know, in our own circles, we don't really see it. We don't hear people say it. But when you go to their schools and their teachings and read their books, they are completely against everything. Their only objective seems to be to overthrow Christianity. That's all they seem to be. Where's them talking about Hinduism? Where's them talking about this ideology and this religion and that religion? You don't, you don't hear of it. You only hear them rebuking and scoffing at Christians and the Bible. All right. This is from the Creed of the Agnostic, the Know Nothing Man. <laughs> uh. 
I believe in a, in a chaotic, nebula, self-existent evolver of, he, of heaven and earth, and in the differentiation of this original homogeneous mass. Its first gotten product, which was self-formed into separate worlds, divided into land and water, self-organized into plants and animals, reproduced in like species, further developed into higher orders, and finally refined, rationalized, and perfected in man. He into higher orders and finally refined, rationalized, perfected, Oh, read that one. He descended from the monkey, ascended to the philosopher, and sitteth down in the rights and customs of civilization under the laws of a developing sociology. From thence he shall become he shall come again by the disintegration of the culmination heterogeneousness back into the original homogeneousness of chaos. I believe in the holy impersonal absolute, the holy un-Catholic church, the disunion of the saints, the survival of the fittest, the persistence of force, the dispersion of the body, and in death everlasting. Never read someone so excited to embellish the ideas of death everlasting. <laughs> it's just sad to hear these people and how led astray they are and have become because science has steered them this way. And last one, thank, thank goodness. It is the Bible that atheists and infidels attack, the Old Testament chiefly, for they are logical and perceive that if the foundation goes, the superstructure cannot stand. No matter how eloquently uh, it can be clothed in agnostic sermons. It will, it, will, it will not do to doubt the universality of the flood and ask men to accept a Savior who alludes to it. If the story of Eden and the deluge of Jericho of Joshua are myths or fables and not literal, flat, literal facts, then to the still rational mind all that follows them is equally so, and faith lost in those who foretold his advent can never be savingly and logically found again in Christ and his apostles. I want you that's a pretty clear theme going on with all, all these people that believe this same doctrine. So, as for me... I will stand by the remarks of such men as the Bishop of Petersboro. I have no fear whatsoever that the Bible will be found in the long run to contain more science than all the theories of philosophers put together. Anyone agree, agree with me on that one? <laughs> How long will you trust the words of God-hating men who desire nothing more than the eradication of any such God and their followers over the words of Almighty God. Stop attempting to fit God's word into conformity and shape of these evil, foolish, reviling men. Instead, let God's word be the shape in which all of men's words, ideas, and thoughts must fit into. If it doesn't fit, immediately discard it. The Bible says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, the word. Whew. So that's my intro for, uh, for tonight. 
<laughs> uh, eventually, I'm probably going to make a book out of this, and that'll probably be my starting uh, <laughs> starting statement with a couple more pages. But uh, <laughs> but it needed to be said. You got to understand the opposition that is really at play here. So tonight's topic, we are going to be talking angels and the stars of heaven. So John, we'll start with John 3, 11 through 12 in the New King James. John 3, 11 through 12. Jesus said to Nicodemus, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 19 through 21. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be expressed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that, that they have been done in God. So if we, if we want to understand you know, even the heavenly things. God says, we need to even understand the earthly things because there are things that are so parallel between these, this natural realm and the heavenly realm, right? I mean, you see this all throughout Scripture. I mean, you talk, you talk about the tabernacle and all the things that are in it are just replicas of what is in the heavenlies. Well, think about that to every degree now in every area of the natural way and order of things that God implemented. They can have far-meaning spiritual concepts as well. God desires for us to understand both earthly and heavenly things. The time to expel ignorance in the matters of terrestrial and celestial bodies that God has placed us over is long overdue. We can no longer afford to abide in darkness. You will be in the dark concerning the end times if you do not come to the understanding and revelation of God and of God's word and his time clock, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So let's start from the beginning here. We're going to get to Genesis 1, 14 through 18. Genesis 1, 14 through 18 says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse, or the firmament, which, as I stated in previous uh, teachings, literally means hammered out sheets of metal that hold and support the waters above. So let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens inside the firmament to give light on the earth and to govern the day and night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So what is the purpose of the sun and the moon and the stars, we kind of got a dual function here that the Scripture gives us. To give light upon the earth and for times and seasons and days 
in years. All right? So we got basically how God is going to effectively institute time is what the stars, the sun, and the moon are going to be used for while also providing lights. So how important is time? Anybody thought about that? How important is time? Is time important? I don't know. Well, we get paid based on the hours worked. Anybody ever heard the phrase, time is money? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I know Mike has, right? <laughs> time is money. <laughs> or you ever heard the phrase, what I, what I would give for more time. Right? When you start to reach the end of your life, it's like, oh, there's so much more I wanted to accomplish in this life. If I just had a little more time. Well, that's kind of our natural perspective, the way we kind of view its importance. But time is important to God. It was the third thing established right after you made a home for time, the firmament. While the earth remains, remember this scripture, seed time and harvest, day and night, summer and winter, cold and heat. What's interesting about all of these is that all of these are in direct correlation with time, with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Appointed times and season, much like prophecy. Anyone think prophecy is important? Oh, yeah, very much so. Well, what is dictating fulfillment of prophecy? An appointed time set by God. Do you really think the devil doesn't want to mess with God's time? <laughs> think about that. God set up a system for us to be able to recognize time, and yet thousands of years later, that system is completely changed. Completely changed. Why? Well, because... <laughs> Oh, I'll get into that. <laughs> Would he not twist and pervert and use it to such effect as to mislead the world and what God has spoken shall come to pass? If God has days and years planned for the, from the beginning of time to accomplish certain tasks, will his enemies stand idly by? No, Satan wants us at the wrong place at the wrong time. Celebrating biblical holidays, feasts, Sabbaths on the wrong days, misunderstanding the hours and the seasons we are in in these last days. I mean, it just makes sense. <laughs> so if Satan were in fear, how would he do it? Well, you can guarantee that he would go out of his way to call God a liar. <laughs> and completely change the narrative of the different celestial bodies that God ordained for seasons, days, and years. And my, oh my, has he ever. When you look up into the stars and the skies, what names do we have for them? <laughs> Apollos, Jupiter, Venus, we have all these ancient mythological 
gods as our stars in the sky. You look at our days of the week, Saturn Day, <laughs> Sunday, Monday, all these names have relation to a certain deity, God. You look at the months, they have correlation to exact deities and gods. The whole thing has become perverted nonsense of ancient gods. You think, was this the way it's always been? Did God call them these names? Did God call it Saturn Day? <laughs> no. This isn't what's described in the Old Testament, the Torah. God never assigned these names to them. But yet that's what they are today, and that's what they've been for thousands of years now. Imagine that. A little surprising, eh? That you think uh, a Christian nation like America and others that have been reformed and <laughs> come to the light, you think we go ahead and change our days and months to more godly appropriate ones. Well, no, because science has remained <laughs> quite the same for a few hundred years in its all-out attack on the Bible, that no one dare go against, especially in Christendom, against what the astrologers say it should be. Daniel 7.25, Daniel 7.25, New King James, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change the times and the law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. Of course, this is referring to the last days, but interesting here that even in the rise of the Antichrist, He's going to seek to change time and law. If we think it's messed up now, just wait till the Antichrist gets his hands on it. Why? Because it's going to matter. Because once the Antichrist comes to power, it's like written explicitly how many days of this and how many days of that he has for gaining power and being in power. So he needs to mess with time to trick the world and think that he's going to stay there indefinitely. Who here can tell me what the zodiac is? Just feel to raise your hand. I'm just start reading things off. How many total years does it encompass in one full revelation? Revolution. How many years is in an age? Who can tell me what an equinox is? Hmm? <laughs> nice. How about a solstice? I'm not seeing any hands. Anybody know what this stuff is? Heard of them, right? But as far as repeating it from memory, no, right? I can hardly do that. And I've been looking at this stuff for a little while out here. How many days constitute a lunar year? 354 days. How many days constitute a solar year? 365, we got one. <laughs> How many uh, days for the moon to complete its circuit? 29 and a half. How many for the sun? How about Venus, Jupiter? How about Mars? 
all these questions of, you know, God's laid it out, and it's been calculated many times over of the revolution of these things and how we can keep time. Like it's been recorded in history, but yet none of us have been taught this. Why is that? Why are we so ignorant in the sun and the moon and the stars? Because the devil doesn't want us knowing for ourselves how to calculate times and seasons and days and years. We just go look at a clock and a calendar. Well, get to, let me tell you this. They've changed calendars before. <laughs> They're constantly moving time up ahead, taking time away, changing days, changing months. They've done that all throughout history, constantly changing time when time has never changed. Reading the time should have always been the constant. But the devil's done such a good job in messing with how we perceive and recognize time. The common man seems to find little interest in understanding the time clock God set up in the heavens. We have simply come to terms that smarter men have figured it all out long ago and that we need not to be bothered by its intricacies or how they are derived by, to such calculations. Why examine if it's not broken? But that's the problem. I'm telling you, it's broken. <laughs> not on the outside, but on the inside. It seems perfectly suitable for what we need it to do. But it's all based off a lie, and the devil is using against the church in ways never dreamed possible uh, by those who once knew how to read the signs of the times in the night sky. It's a lost art that needs to be brought back so that God can reveal his plans at the appointed times and that we then can recognize his majesty and power and his divine order or events that come into alignment. We're going to read Psalms 19, 1 through 6. Psalms 19, 1 through 6. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where the voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit is to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. There's a lot of things I could say on this scripture. Very interesting things. But take, take notice here. What is the thing that's doing the moving when you look at Scripture, what moves? Does the earth move or does the sun move? When you look at Scripture, does the earth move or do, does the moon move? When you look at Scripture, does the earth move or do the stars move and fall from heaven? Take note. Where does it say the earth moves in Scripture? In fact, it doesn't. It says the exact opposite many times over. I'll quickly just read them to you. First Chronicles 16.30. Tremble before him all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. It can tremble and quake. It mentions that many times. 
but says it will not be moved. Psalm 104, verse 5, You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. It's pretty definite there. Psalms 96, 10, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Psalm 93, 1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. How many more scriptures do you need? The Bible says, let two or three witness and testify. Now, if there were two, three scriptures saying how the earth moved, I could see where we might have a, a problem and need to look into things, right? But you won't find that in scripture. Something else uh, I found interesting when uh, Psalms 19, like a bridegroom coming out of his, or back a little bit. Uh, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Has anybody ever heard of an eclipse? Solar eclipses? Right? It's believed that, you know, a lunar eclipse is when the moon is here, the earth is in the middle, and the sun is over here, right? And it's putting, the earth is putting a shadow on the moon. But there's a problem with that is that there have been lunar eclipses where the sun and the moon being eclipsed has been visible at the same time, many times in recorded history. You think, how does that make sense? There are times where an eclipse has happened, and as soon as it completely encompasses the whole circle, it becomes translucent, and you can see through just, except now it's even brighter and more defined. You think, what is that? There have been times in recorded history where a shadow of a triangle has been put on the moon that has... Define that to me. In the book of Enoch, which is more of the apocryphal books than the 66 Canaan books, it is a very book that talks a lot about celestial bodies and stars and how more intricately how that stuff works. And it also talks about chambers for the sun and the moon. And yet here we had the same reference in Psalms 19 talk about uh, like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. I have read in books that it was widely believed and just known that there were invisible moons and that the thing that is eclipsing the moon is actually just these invisible dark bodies, these invisible moons. Very interesting. Especially to me, because I've watched a lot of videos, a lot of videos, YouTube videos of NASA, you know, all their NASA, all the NASA videos, and just people recording things from airplanes. And I have actually seen a video from a plane looking at, it's either the moon or the sun, I don't even remember, but it, there were three distinct, what looked like uh, crescent moons all around, like three different ones, 
like spread out around the sun or moon, whatever they were filming. I thought, what is that? And it made me think right to now as I'm reading these other accounts of uh, ancient, you know, eclipses and all these things, how they all talked about these, these invisible moons. And I think these invisible moons are the chambers in which the sun and the moon come out. Now, again, this is a little more speculation at this point. So, but I believe diving more in, which I want to do, which I love doing, we may find some uh, interesting answers. How about this? Have you ever seen a time-lapse video or picture of the stars or time-lapse of the stars? Anyone ever seen that? Yeah? What does it look like? You could probably pull it up on a, your Google phone, just type in time-lapse of the stars, and you'll have Polaris, right, if you happen to be looking at Polaris, at the center, and every other star is forming a perfect circle. Basically, they're taking a picture every 30 minutes so they can see the, where the stars are going and how they move. And what they do is they form complete perfect circles around Polaris. Well, it's kind of a, if you ever thought about this in what NASA and everybody else tells you to think, it's kind of wild. Um, let's see if I can find this real quick. Um, I'll just read this. When did the narrative of the stars change and who changed it? A bunch of sun-worshipping Freemasons creating this magical uh, place called outer space and made the sun the center of our solar system, our sun system. Now, instead of a firm foundation, we have four pillars. We have, instead of four pillars, we have zero pillars and a round core. Instead of an earth with four corners and completely unmovable, we now have a round spheroid for a footstool that is tipping sideways toward the sun at 66.6 degrees with a curvature of 0.66 feet per square mile flying through the galaxy at 666,000 miles per hour with an orbital speed of 66,600 miles per hour. Anybody see a problem with those numbers? <laughs> go ahead. Go read the NASA websites. That's what they'll tell you. Orbital speed, velocity through the solar system, curvature of the Earth per square mile. It's right there in the open, leaning towards the sun at 66.6 .6 degrees. It's all right there, all these... <laughs> Numbers. But as far as the stars, realize men have been able to navigate and predict time from the start of creation, right? Since the time he placed the firmament in there and put the stars in there, it's been a constant steady. People could navigate the seas. I mean, they bet their life on it. I mean, if you're back day, you're sailing, you're betting your life on that the stars are going to stay the same. That's pretty important, right? If they're off, you're going <laughs> somewhere in the world, and you have no clue. You're, you're not, it's not going to be good for you. But guess what? These things have stayed the same for thousands of years. But yet, if you understand what NASA and the governments around the world are trying to tell you, first off, they're telling you that we spin the Earth at a 1,000 plus my, it varies based on whether you're in the equator or others, that we're spinning at over 1,000 miles per hour, okay? That's one motion. They also say we're orbiting around the sun constantly. 
right? Just doing circles around the sun. Then they also say that our solar system, the sun, is shooting through our galaxy at an enormous fast pace. Put that all together and put yourself on this spinning, orbiting, flying through space thing. Just And now look up and try to imagine what the stars would be doing. <laughs> I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how you would have a different star picture every minute, every hour. I mean, it's just astronomical to try to comprehend what they're trying to feed you. That somehow it just stays the same. I thought we're supposed to, I thought the universe is ever expanding, that we're constantly moving through it. Shouldn't the constellations change? Shouldn't it not be predictable? That sounds logical or rational to me. Question to ask. And we know what the word NASA means in Hebrew. I'll tell you. To beguile, deceive, to lead astray, to seduce. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Here is what modern science says about the shape of the earth. What was the original shape of the earth? The earth is an irregular shaped ellipsoid. While the Earth appears to be round when viewed from the vantage point of space, it is actually closer to an ellipsoid. However, even an ellipsoid does not adequately describe the Earth's unique and ever-changing shape. That's what modern science says. Anybody heard of uh, Neil deGrasse? May know who that is. Famous uh, astro astrophysicist. America's top public figure in, in astrophysics. You know what he says? He says the earth is now pear-shaped, a bit chubbier around the waist. Yeah, him and Fauci should get together, most definitely. That's what he said while giving a lecture, being interviewed, sitting down with another smart, supposedly smart guy, and they're just kind of laughing about this, thinking, the earth is pear-shaped? <laughs> yeah, it's getting old. <laughs> Billions and trillions of years old. <laughs> Which I'm not saying it's not, but at this point, I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yep. So all those videos from, uh, you know, NASA and pictures we got from before, you know, they're just a little off. You know, all those perfectly spheroid ones, you know, it's now an ellipsoid, pear-shaped. This is so ridiculous. How many times are they going to change their lies? Let me know when the term planet came about or what it means. Planet was, wasn't derived until about the 1700s. In Latin, it means 
wandering star. Interesting. Wandering star. Does anyone else find it eerily strange the names we still use for our days and months are all, again, these ancient deities and gods? How about Lucifer? And remember one of his nicknames? The Morning Star. Very good. In Revelations, stars will fall from heaven to earth. Anybody ever heard that? Right? Many times. If stars were what NASA says they are, big balls of fire, hundreds, millions, thousands of times bigger than the earth, what do you think would happen if a star or stars fell from heaven to earth? <laughs> There'd be nothing left of earth, right? So it cannot compute. It must be symbolic. See, this is where they constantly just get at us and get at us to where we have to try to concede that, ah, oh, yeah, maybe the Bible isn't literal. Maybe it's not r really talking like we, like we think it is. You see how it's just this constant etching away, trying to eat away at our beliefs and what God has said. Oh, and Enoch book of Enoch again, describes how God bound up celestial bodies that did not obey the command of God and were bound hand and foot and thrown into the celestial slammer for 10,000 years until judgment. Interesting. So I'm going to start diving into kind of all the scriptures I found on stars. So I'm kind of going to let, done enough talking of my own, I'm going to let the scriptures start to interpret themselves. So I kind of categorize them here. And so the first category I have is the fall of Lucifer, the morning star. We'll start with that one, from among the nest of stars is my caption. So Isaiah 14.12, Isaiah 14.12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. So first off, just see that the Bible is referencing Lucifer, an angel, which God later describes in other, as a cherub, cherubim angel. Describes him as a star. Interesting. Uh, of course, what else is interesting? It says, you've been cut down to the earth, you who weakened the nations. Well, we know during whenever Lucifer's fall was, it wasn't during the time of man, right? Because we found him in the garden right there with that when Adam and Eve were made. Well, when, so when was Lucifer's fall? What nations did he weaken? Well, we'll read some more of these scriptures and Let's find some other interesting things. Luke 10, 18. Luke 10, 18 says, And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So we have the New Testament talking about this. And Obadiah 2, 4. Obadiah 2, 4. Behold, or Obadiah 2 through 4, I think. <laughs> That's what that means. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. 
you who lived in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So some interesting things here. It says you lived in the clefts of the rock. That's interesting. Anybody ever wondered where hailstone and brimstone come from when God like devours like Sodom and Gomorrah and all these things? Like we think that they just kind of come out of nowhere. Maybe. Or maybe there's maybe they come from the wandering stars, or maybe they come from the sun, or maybe they come from different areas. So just throwing some thoughts out there because uh, things I've read about uh, the stars being, you know, a lot of times the stars are basically referred to as things of fire, right? That's kind of where I think where scientists get their idea of the stars being balls of fire because it's what they kind of look like, but kind of what they are more so described so in the scriptures. Um, let's see. Who will bring me down to earth? And it says, set your nest among the stars. All right, we're going to talk about the uh, next category of stars. Again, I've talked about Lucifer probably enough. I don't need to give him more airtime than I <laughs> sometimes do. But, <laughs> but just interesting that the Bible references Lucifer as a star because I'm kind of going somewhere with this. Stars falling from the sky. We'll read Matthew 24, 29. Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. It's another kind of interesting that because these stars fall from the sky that the powers of heaven get shaken. In Daniel 8, 10 through 11 and verse 24, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself, magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and, place it, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. It's kind of clear who we're talking about here, right? Lucifer, again, <laughs> thought I was done. <laughs> but notice how it says, some of the host and some of the stars fell to the earth. Now, what do we call angelic? Usually angelic hosts, right? We kind of have these this host and stars term being kind of very closely tied together all the time in these scriptures, especially when talking about them being and falling down to the earth. Uh, verse 24 of the whatever I was reading before. His power will be mighty, but not his own power. Again, talk about the Antichrist, how the devil gives the Antichrist power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will and will destroy mighty men and the holy people. 
in Mark 13, 24 through 26. Mark 13, 24 through 26. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Again, another kind of repeat of the stars falling and the powers of heaven being shaken. Revelations 9.1, Revelations 9.1 says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and he saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. You know, most of the things that are going on uh, in Revelation, whether the seals or the trumpets or the bowls, you'll notice are done by who? Angels, right? It says, a star fell from heaven which had been given to the earth and a key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So you don't give a key to just anybody to the bottomless pit, <laughs> right? Uh, if you give a key to me to the bottomless pit, I don't think I can get there and know what to do with it. And <laughs> right, so just another kind of referencing that this star fell from heaven, I, we believe to be an angel. Revelations 8, 7 through 12. Revelations 8, 7 through 12. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. So here's kind of that correlation of he was in the cleft of the rock, but then we have a giant burning brimstone like a mountain thrown from the heavenlies into the sea. You're thinking, where is that, where is that thing residing? You know? So just kind of things and mysteries we don't really know or perceive or know exactly where they're coming from. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and half and had life, died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sat, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck." so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. So just a lot of interesting things going on here with stars and angels and <laughs> craziness going on. But so interesting, a third of the stars were struck. Uh, Revelations uh, 12 Revelations 12, 3 through 4, and 7 through 9, talking about the red dragon, Satan. Then another sign appeared in the heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns on his head, were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. Was that sound familiar to anybody? How Satan led a revolt of a third of the angels? So... Is it possible, you know, that uh, he's just talking about kind of prehistory of the dragon, maybe? And a third of the stars 
You notice that it says stars of heaven, doesn't call them angels. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels were warring with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found in them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So I want you to... I hear a, a lot of angels being thrown down, and I hear a lot of stars being thrown down. I think there's a little correlation here. All right, we're going to start. We're going to kind of go over the topic of principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual weakness in heavenly places, uh, kind of where they're mentioned in scriptures. So the main one a lot of us have heard are Ephesians 6.12. Ephesians 6.12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual weakness in high places. Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. So it's kind of three scriptures here that talk about different principalities and powers and rulers and thrones. And so 1 Peter 3.22 says, Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers and had been subjected to him. Um, so I just want to, I know it's, well, it's getting late fast, eh? <laughs> like wrap it up. Where's Clayton when you need him? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, just kind of want to quickly share uh, the hierarchy of angels that uh, the Jewish um, people believed in. Ten different uh, hierarchies of angels. You had a. Uh, Kind of in order. Shayat HaKadesh, <laughs> Ophanum, Irelim, Hashamalim, Seraphim, Malakam, Elohim, Beni Elohim, Cherubim, and Ishim. More the Christianity version has nine, and they kind of divide them into three different categories or hierarchies. Uh, the high orders they say are the seraphim, the cherubim, and thrones. Uh, the middle order is do dominions, virtues, and powers. And the lowest orders, principalities, archangels, and, and angels. So I think I'll start wrapping up. But just to kind of give you an idea that I believe uh, there's a scripture. I don't even have time to go into it. But it says that God... Uh, has a different glory for the sun, a different glory for the moon, and different glories for each angel. Even the angels vary in their glory, which is what kind of lines up with these different hierarchy. You know, why we, you know, what are these cherubim and these four, four living beings with eyes all over and these seraphim? There's so many that seems like different because they refer to them as angels, but at the same time they call them different names. So what's going on? Well, there's this system that God has of 
these are made for this purpose and they look like this and some have four faces and eyes all over and others are just your normal, you know, I believe everyone has guardian angels. You know, I think those are different than what cherubims and seraphims and thrones and dominions and principalities. They all have their place of rank and file. So just uh, interesting kind of getting into this, but kind of the overall theme of what I'm kind of getting into is that I believe the stars that, you know, science is so obsessed over is actually angels, which, again, looking through all these scriptures, the correlation between them is almost just like it's too coincidental that they just, the host and the angels, and there's just so much, there's so many scriptures on them that it's hard to not believe that angels are stars. So, um, again, I would like to dive more into it, but we are running out of time. I got a lot more to go into, but I will have to leave it there and continue for another time because it's a big subject to talk about all the different verses with the stars and all the, and what that could possibly mean, and then trying to figure out time into all that. So I just want to give you kind of just a review of like, you know, time is important to God, right? The sun and the moon and the stars. Now, if angels are not stars, I definitely believe that they move the motions of the stars, as I believe in Enoch talks about how they kind of give movement to these things. Now, we talk about the wheels within wheels and all these things and how, you know, you ever heard UFOs and flying saucers and all things. Like, I believe they actually exist, but I believe more in a de not demonic or angelic nature of flying through the sky and moving around and doing things, falling down to the, to the earth, right? So just a whole bunch of different things that we could get into, but God wants you to dive into his word and figure out time. So one of these times I'm going to make a thing on time and kind of go through of what it used to be and how it should be calculated and all the different things so we can kind of have an understanding. So when we look at scripture, we can be like, oh yeah, this happened at that time. And you can actually know that it's, you know, because you start looking at history. History is a combobulated mess. Everybody says a different time for this and a different time for that and a different time for this. It's just like, can we just, why can't we agree? Because the times have been so messed up. So, so that's all I got for you tonight. Let's say a little prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you, Lord, for God setting up, Lord, this system of time and being able to uh, just believe and trust, God, that you set this up from the beginning, that you knew what you were doing. And God, so we just choose to dive into the word, and if we have beliefs that are contrary to your word, God, just root them up. It may take some time. And that's fine, Lord, we, but the more we digest and chew on your word and dive into your truths, we know that truth uh, begins to just arise and faith begins to arise in what you have spoken. So just help clear our minds of any uh, false teachings. Help us to put things on the shelf and examine to see whether or not they are of you or not. Because we just, the bottom line, we want the truth. God, we want to serve you with all the capacity that we we have, and we want to show up at the right places at the right times with the right people uh, to fulfill your plans and your purposes. So help us to see, open our eyes and our hearts, 
God, that we can see what your word says with clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless everyone. Love you guys. And see you. Oh, tithes. All right. We're going to do tithes and offerings. Can't forget that. <laughs> uh, I always get caught up. You know me. <laughs> Hallelujah. So you can make your checks to Passion Church. You can give online. Uh, you can write checks or give cash in an envelope. Uh, if you don't have any near you, just raise your hand and Mike will get one to you. But Who needs the soundboard when you got uh, mom's phone? <laughs> Turn it off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> last, last time I invite you to the front row. No. <laughs> Can't take your mother anywhere these days, I tell you. <laughs> uh, anyways, so, all right, come forward, Mike. Let's uh, pray for this offering. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord. Lord, for your many blessings you bless us with. God, we just give back a portion of what you've blessed us with. Uh, we just want to be able to bless you and uh, just acknowledge you that you are our provider. So we just put our trust in you, and we just thank you, Lord, for all that you've blessed us with. Bless this house. Bless the giver and the gift. In Jesus' name, amen.